And I think it's safe to say this late in the year that by now everybody knows that 2007 is the 400th anniversary of the founding of Virginia. There's been quite a lot of well-deserved publicity about the fort at Jamestown, about Captain John Smith, and about Pocahontas. I don't know about you, but the, image, the images of those three small ships are burned on my brain. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> those, are <clears throat> those are certainly important elements in our, <clears throat> in our early history. <clears throat> Excuse me. But what is often overlooked about Virginia's founding is this point. From the beginning, even before those little ships left England, Virginia was a business enterprise. The colony was fundamentally shaped by commerce. From the Virginia Company of London to America Online, our 400-year history owes as much to businesses and business leaders as to war and politics. Our speaker today will survey that history. He'll tell us about spectacular successes and dismal failures, about those who innovated and those who became obsolete. Dr. Paul Levengood is a native of Philadelphia, but has drunk deeply from Southern institutions. He graduated from Davidson College. He earned his PhD from Rice University, and he held a postdoctoral fellowship at the University of North Carolina. He's the author of a brand new book, Virginia, Catalyst of Commerce for Four Centuries. Better hold it up right. <clears throat> uh, this handsome book of course, is available in our museum shop, and he'll be signing them after the lecture, and it's upside down. <laughs> um, it's an ideal gift for the businessman or woman in your life. Um, Paul has been at the VHS since the year 2000. He started as associate editor of the Virginia Magazine of History and Biography, and I can tell you that he's been a tower of strength here. I've relied on him implicitly ever since he came to work for the journal. He has an assured sense of writing, and his knowledge of the most recent scholarship on Southern history is really unrivaled here at the VHS. Moreover, he's known around the building for his wicked sense of humor and his encyclopedic knowledge of sports. He is now the managing editor of the Virginia Magazine and also wears a second hat as program coordinator for the Reynolds Center for History. Reynolds Business History Center. He's spoken widely in Central Virginia and beyond. Most recently, he gave a talk at the Governor's Business Appreciation Week breakfast, and he also spoke to the Bar Association at its midsummer meeting. He's written a number of articles and has another book under contract with Texas A&M University Press. It's called Houston at War, The Creation of a Modern City. And I can reveal to you today the subject of his next book, which is a project dear to his heart, and that's a history of soccer in America. Please welcome Dr. Paul Levengood, who will speak to us on the topic, The Business of Virginia Has Always Been Business. Thank you very much, Nelson, for that uh, blush-inducing introduction, and thanks to all of you for spending your lunch hour here with me. Banner lecturers usually say how happy they are to be at the VHS, and I'm certainly no exception. I just have the good fortune to be able to say that every day, not just on an occasion like this. 
Well, now that the last wisps of smoke from the quadricentennial fireworks have drifted away and the queen is back on her side of the pond, let's move past the rhetoric and the myth and get down to the unvarnished reason why Virginia was founded in 1607. The intrepid group of 104 settlers who landed on the bank of the James 400 years ago was not engaged in some romantic quest for adventure or a high-blown search for religious freedom. No, no, they arrived in this alien land in the hopes of enriching themselves and their investors in the joint stock Virginia Company back in England. The planting of Virginia was, plain and simple, a business enterprise. The pursuit of filthy lucre, as they might have said. Although the first Virginians were Englishmen mostly, and Christians, King and Cross were not their primary motivations in embarking on a perilous, uncertain prospect of a four-and-a-half-month-long transatlantic voyage to set up shop in a vast wilderness inhabited by who knows what. No, pushing and pulling these 104 men and boys to wade across, wade ashore on that narrow island in the James on May 14, 1607, was what has driven millions ever since to make the journey to what has become the United States, economic opportunity. Those first permanent English settlers in the New World were not religious dissenters or utopian idealists. They were second sons, restricted by the practice of primogeniture. They were landless poor. They were young men escaping life as virtual slaves apprenticed to craftsmen. Most were desperate enough to take this huge risk, and a risk it was. Eight months later, 70% of them would be dead. I think the nature of Virginia's founding as a business enterprise has played a large role in what for many Virginians of recent years has been a source of wounded state pride. The national view that the story of America started on some rock in Massachusetts rather than on the banks of the mighty James. My colleague here at the VHS, Jim Kelly, has rightly suggested that it has all been down to marketing. He points out that the particular circumstances of the Pilgrims' arrival in 1620 are much warmer and fuzzier than were Virginia's early years. Think about it. They meet Indians and cooperate with them, and soon they're all stuffing themselves with turkey and pumpkin pie and falling asleep on the couch together. <laughs> Meanwhile, Virginians are starving and killing many of the Indians they encounter as they find none of the gold that they hope for. So I'll ask you, which is the more marketable creation story? And I think that it's far easier for Americans to pick as their progenitors a plucky band of religious idealists who braved the wilds of America for a cause instead of those sent by big business to make money. Americans are really of two minds on this issue. Even though economic motivations drive all of us, we don't usually like to admit to it. If you want to know what kinds of heroes we revere in this country, just look at popular culture. To draw a comparison to perhaps the most beloved American film, It's a Wonderful Life, Who's the good guy and who's the villain? That's right, I'm saying it. Plymouth is George Bailey, and Virginia is mean old Mr. Potter. In some ways, Virginians are responsible for downplaying their own true heritage. The mercenary strivings of a bunch of get-rich-quicksters, most early Virginians thought they would make a killing and then return to live in England, do not conform to the image of graceful gentility that came to predominate in Virginia mythology. Of course, it was overlooked that the progenitors of the first families of Virginia, those FFVs, were not landed gentry when they stepped off the boat. They were strivers who only aspired to climb that socioeconomic ladder. 
Despite the efforts of the first Virginia settlers, riches, quick or otherwise, were not easily found in Virginia. The colony was short on agricultural savvy, and it showed. We all know the stories of goldsmiths and silkmakers being sent over by Englishmen like Richard Hacklett when what was needed were farmers and hunters. Only the adoption of a military-style discipline that forced colonists to plant food crops kept starvation at bay. Even so, hunger and disease took a terrible toll, and after six or seven years, the colony's continued existence was very much in question. The Virginia Company was seeing no return on its investment, and if you'll pardon the pun, the colonists, well, they just weren't returning. All right, here we should almost cue some music from like a John Ford Western. And the voice gets low. Into the breach rode a savior in the form of a man and a plant. The man was John Rolfe, a.k.a. Mr. Pocahontas, and the plant was, of course, tobacco. Virginia and its economy were never to be the same. Rolfe knew that the sweet-tasting Nicotiana tobacco grown in the Spanish West Indies fetched a high price in Europe. He and other Englishmen had tasted a variety of tobacco, Nicotiana rustica, that was native to Virginia and which was used ceremonially by local Indians. The strain was harsh to the European palate, but Rolf surmised that where one tobacco plant thrived, so might another. After experimenting with several strains of sweet tobacco, he hit on one that worked. By 1614, he had raised enough that he could send four barrels of it to England on spec to see how it sold. As an aside, I wonder how many of you have seen this new license plate? Oops. Sorry it's, a, sorry, it's a little bit blurry. But if you can read it, it says, Virginia, farming since 1614. Hmm. What the DMV folks should have said here, I think, is Virginia commercially successful farming since 1614. Uh, certainly Virginia Indians would have been surprised to learn that there had been no farming in Virginia before John Rolfe's first shipment in 1614. Although most of Rolfe's neighbors probably didn't realize it, as those barrels made their way across the Atlantic, the very future of their colony hung in the balance. As luck would have it, although in today's climate it seems strange to describe anything about tobacco as fortunate, Rolf received a high price. What happened next almost beggars belief. Virginia was transformed almost overnight from a laggard backwater into a virtual tobacco factory. It was almost like a scene from some Monty Python sketch, you know, Virginians suddenly planting tobacco in every available patch of land including the very streets of Jamestown itself. By 1618, they were exporting more than 50,000 pounds annually to England. The discovery of a cash crop gave the Virginia Company a reason not to pull the plug on the colony, certainly an important development, but there were other far-reaching consequences. Tobacco suddenly made land valuable, and settlement expanded significantly outside of Jamestown for the first time as the Virginia Company granted individuals and groups ownership of new plantations. Understandably, this land grab did not sit well with the Powhatan, and they made a desperate, violent attempt in 1622 to stop it. Although the uprising claimed one-third of the English population of Virginia, it failed in its intended result. The profit motive proved too great. The colonists and their tobacco moved inexorably on. One notable result of the 1622 uprising was that the Crown revoked the charter of the colony from the Virginia Company. Despite his personal feelings about tobacco, King James I knew that England had a good thing going in Virginia and wanted to ensure that the colony continued to produce wealth. 
By making Virginia a crown colony, the king made a smart business move. He guaranteed that profits that had previously accrued to the investors of the Virginia Company now flowed into his own coffers. Back in Virginia, a problem emerged, as it often does in a booming economy, how to ensure a dependable labor supply. Planters found that they could have all the land in the world, but without the hands to plant, tend, and harvest it, their productivity was limited. Surprisingly, a few in Virginia volunteered to do the intensive, nasty work required to produce tobacco. Go figure. It was clear that a dependable, long-term labor force was needed. Thus was indentured servitude born. Capitalizing on a surplus of population in Britain, Virginia planters paid for the passage of workers across the Atlantic. In return, these men and women agreed to work for a set period, usually between five and eight years, for the chance at acquiring land once freed. In addition to the labor of these indentured servants, planters also earned a head right, or grant of 50 acres, for every person they so imported. But the pool of available laborers in Britain began drying up toward the end of the 17th century. Virginians looked around the Americas and saw there was an alternative labor source already being used, to great effect, in British Barbados. The economic decision that they made would have monumental consequences for all of Virginia's subsequent history. The shift to African chattel slavery about 1700 inarguably had cultural and racial components. Clearly, it's easier to make the decision to enslave people different than oneself. But make no mistake, the driving force behind the enslavement of Africans in Virginia, or elsewhere in the Western Hemisphere for that matter, was economic. It is one of the most chilling aspects of slavery that it emerged from such a cold-blooded business decision. An initial investment bought one not just the labor of the purchased, but also that of his or her offspring in perpetuity. And in a tragic irony, slaves turned out to be an exceptional investment for the booming colony of Virginia. For here, unlike on the brutal sugar plantations of the Caribbean, African slaves not only did not die in staggering numbers, they quickly grew in number from natural increase. Sadly, the adaptability of people of African descent actually made slavery a practical economic enterprise. With a new stable labor force, Virginia planters could open up lands that had been inaccessible before. Moving beyond the tidewater, plantations gobbled up the vast virgin forests of the Piedmont and Southside, bringing tobacco production to astronomical levels. If there was a height to plantation life in Virginia, it came in this first half of the 17th century and on the backs of African slaves. The first families of Virginia, the Byrds, Lees, Carters, and Randolphs, and the fabulous homes they built, Westover, Stratford Hall, Shirley, Wilton, they all hit their prime in this period. Aspiring to mimic the lifestyle of the English landed gentry, these wealthiest Virginians set a standard for opulence and gracious living that became an integral part of the image of old Virginia. The men, and they were almost exclusively men, who ran these plantations often seem to us to have been the original men of leisure. And yet, to do them justice, it's worth remembering just what sophisticated businessmen these 18th century planters were. Most personally oversaw their agricultural operations, often out in the fields at sunrise, to maximize their profits, they also had to master the intricacies of trade in the Atlantic world and in European markets for tobacco and other Virginia products. And they did this all in a time when contacting their agents and partners in London or Liverpool often took months. Some Virginia planters, with their fingers on the pulse of international trade, 
began to realize in the mid-17th century that over-reliance on one crop was a problem. As businessmen, they paid attention to the tremendously volatile nature of the tobacco trade, watching as prices rose and fell, often at staggering speeds. These planters also realized that tobacco had a voracious appetite for land, robbing soil of its nutrients in as little as 20 years. As long as there was always virgin, virgin acreage just over the horizon, this wasn't a problem. But when the land along Virginia's major rivers had all been snapped up deep into the interior, it began to seem that tobacco monoculture was not such a good idea. An excellent example of a Virginia planter who came to this realization was the most famous Virginian of all. George Washington had assumed control over the operations of Mount Vernon in 1752 on the death of his brother Lawrence. After struggling through several years of low prices for the plantation's tobacco, Washington inquired of his London agents about what to do. They candidly told him that his tobacco was not very good. They advised moving into food production instead. Washington took this advice early in the 1760s, turning Mount Vernon to produce wheat, a far less demanding crop. With the newfound profits and the excess slave labor he now had, Washington diversified the plantation into a multifaceted agricultural and industrial enterprise. He built a grist mill that processed his wheat as well as that of many of his neighbors. The father of our country also established a distillery, now recreated at Mount Vernon, by the way, which would become one of the largest in the early United States. And if that wasn't enough, he used slave labor to build a commercial shad fishing operation, pulling in as many as 8,000 fish per year during spring runs on the Potomac. He also became a land speculator in syndicates like the Ohio Company and an investor in companies building canals on both the Potomac and the James. In a single individual, George Washington embodied the important shift in the Virginia economy that took place in the mid-18th century. As he turned away from tobacco, so did many, although in certain areas, like the South Side, it would continue to dominate for years to come. The Taylor family in the Northern Neck is perhaps the best example of this. In addition to their large agricultural holdings, they maintained the colony's largest ironworks, Neabsco in Prince William County, and engaged in shipbuilding, commercial horse breeding, and other ventures. With the beginnings of economic diversification, one of the colony's most curious traits changed. Despite more than 100 years of growth, as the 18th century dawned, Virginia had almost no urban places. Williamsburg had become the capital in 1698, but it was a backwater, enlivened only by the periodic occurrence of legislative sessions. Virtually no other place could have even been considered an especially large town. The question is why? Well, for economic reasons, really. Because early colonists had settled on large tracts of land along rivers and creeks that were navigable by ocean-going vessels, planters could literally wait for English and Scottish merchants to visit them. And with them, they did more than simply transact tobacco. These merchants took orders for British manufactured goods, acted as bankers, and sometimes even supplied slaves. Most commerce could be conducted, most needs met, from the comfort of one's own plantation. And if you were of the poor or middling class, well, you could do business directly with one of your larger planter neighbors. If you think about it, what I've just described is a lot of what cities are all about, places to conduct business, have social interaction, and make purchases. But because of the peculiar economic and geographic development of early Virginia, these needs were met in the countryside. But with a growing backcountry population and a shift away from exclusive reliance on agriculture in the mid-18th century, there emerged the beginning of an urban network, with towns often placed to serve as, as transportation and manufacturing hubs for the surrounding countryside. 
The years from 1728 to 57 were a golden age of town building. Fredericksburg, Norfolk, Richmond, Petersburg, Alexandria, Winchester, Stanton, and Lynchburg all trace their origins to this period. In all these places, manufacturers, merchants, bankers, and lawyers found people in need of their services, and they thrived, connected not just to the countryside, but increasingly to each other and to towns and cities and other colonies. The emergence of urban centers in the mid-18th century was but one indicator of a vibrant economy in Virginia. By 1770, it was Britain's most populous and wealthiest North American colony. It was also fully enmeshed in the trade system of the empire. So what turned Virginians into revolutionaries who would break their bonds with the mother country? I would argue that paramount in, in turning many into supporters of independence were economic motives. Low tobacco prices in the 1760s led British merchants increasingly to seek to collect debts owed them by Virginia planters. This unwelcome affront to planters' status as gentlemen was coupled with imperial efforts to raise revenue from the colonies to help pay for their defense. The twin pincers of private creditors and new taxes galvanized many Virginians. Significantly, it was in the economic realm that Virginians first demonstrated against the crown with a series of non-importation agreements and boycotts. When the revolution came, the economy of Virginia suffered from the loss of British markets, but the state saw little combat or destruction. And Virginia emerged from the revolution as the dominant state in the new nation. It had the largest population, it supplied a disproportionate number of leaders to the new government, and it boasted an increasingly powerful, diversified economy. Economic trends begun before the revolution continued afterward. Cities grew as manufacturing and transportation became more and more important in Virginia. Industry continued to be largely tied to the land, with the processing of agricultural products taking center stage. For example, with British markets now closed to American tobacco, much of the Virginia crop now had to be processed domestically. Tobacco factories became among the most significant industrial enterprises in Richmond, Petersburg, Lynchburg, and Danville. The work of stripping tobacco leaves of their stems, rolling cigars, and making the so-called Virginia twist chewing tobacco was tedious and dirty and largely done by enslaved laborers, many of whom were women. By the 1850s, Richmond factories used hundreds of slaves, either owned by companies themselves or rented from nearby farms. Almost as significant was flour milling. Water power drove grist mills large and small in communities across the state. River cities like Fredericksburg and Lynchburg had sizable mill operations, but it was Richmond that became the center of milling in the state, utilizing the vast kinetic power generated by the falls of the James River. Two enormous mills, Galago and Hacksaw, began operations in the 1790s and grew throughout the 19th century. By 1860, they had helped make Richmond the leading flour milling center in the U.S. That year, Galago turned out 190,000 barrels of flour and Hacksaw 160,000. Other industries gained new momentum in the early 19th century as well. Iron forges sprang up throughout the valley and in western counties and sent their pig iron to Richmond and Petersburg to be fashioned into finished products. Tredegar Iron Works in Richmond, founded in 1833, was the most important metal producer in the state. It turned out, among other things, 70 locomotives between 1850 and 1860, along with hundreds of miles of railroad track and many other products. Virginia also seemed to have the lead in another industry that would become increasingly important as the century progressed. I'm speaking of coal, the fuel of the industrial age. 
And Virginia had been a coal producer since at least 1699, when a discovery was made of soft bituminous coal in what is now Chesterfield County. But it was the discovery of much larger deposits in the Kanawha and Ohio Valleys that seemed to promise Virginia the preeminent spot in U.S. coal production. However, it was not to be. Legislators from eastern Virginia refused to fund the extension of the James River and Kanawha Canal to reach these new seams. With no way to transport the coal from western Virginia, exploiting this rich natural resource would have to wait until at least the 1840s, when railroads finally connected the area to the rest of the state. In the interim, however, the enormous anthracite coal fields of western Pennsylvania were, had been opened, and that state had seized the lead in production, and it was a lead it would not relinquish. Even though Virginia's economy had changed dramatically by the mid-19th century, the state was still dominated by agriculture, and most Virginians still worked the land. Corn and wheat production soared through the first half of the 19th century. Tobacco continued to recede in importance, except on the south side, but its legacy loomed large in the tidewater, where the crop had already done its work, devastating a great deal of land. Thomas Jefferson's grandson, Francis Epps, summed up the sentiments of many when he declared in 1828, quote, I see no ties which should bind any descendants of our grandfather to this state. The soil is exhausted, the staple reduced almost to the prime cost of the materials. What inducement is there to remain? With their lands played out, many Virginians chose to migrate from the state for economic reasons. Close to a million did so between the Revolution and the Civil War. Some went south to the booming cotton frontier. Others moved on to the west onto the Great Plains, which were being brought into cultivation thanks to a native Virginian who believed that his invention of an automatic reaper could more profitably be manufactured and marketed from a base in the Midwest than in old Virginia. Cyrus McCormick set up shop in Chicago in 1847, and the rest is history. Although whites migrated in search of improved economic opportunity, enslaved Virginians were not so lucky. About half of those million Virginians who left the state did not have a choice. Whether sold off to parts unknown or taken by a Virginia master to a new state, slaves were forcibly uprooted from homes they had inhabited for generations, removed from the familiar rhythms of tobacco and grain cultivation, and thrust into the new routines of cotton and sugar production under the hot sun of Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Those slaves who were moved in a group from Virginia to their owners' new homes in the Deep South had at least a chance at maintaining family ties. However, most Bonds people were sold south with no effort made to preserve existing relationships. The constitutionally mandated end of slave imports in 1808 occurred just as the cotton boom began. This greatly elevated the prices that, that cash-strapped Virginia planters could receive for their slaves. Thus, the state became the greatest supplier of the internal slave market, sending about half a million slaves south between 1800 and 1860. In the Virginia centers of the trade, Alexandria and Richmond, slave trafficking became an important part of the local economy. Major dealers like Franklin and Armfield in Alexandria and Robert Lumpkin in Richmond ran sophisticated operations that purchased across the state and arranged for transportation by boat, train, and coffle column of slaves chained together to walk to their destination. At their peak in the 1840s, the markets of Richmond handled from 10 to 15,000 slaves annually. A sad business, indeed. I just mentioned the various ways that slaves were moved out of the state 
And this leads me to an important topic in the economic history of Virginia, transportation. I've mentioned in passing the James River and Kanawha Canal. Oops, slave market, sorry. This was an ambitious attempt to link the Kanawha River in what is now West Virginia with the Atlantic via the James. Begun as a private company in 1785, the canal consistently failed to meet construction goals and the state assumed control in 1820. By 1840, the waterway stretched from Richmond to Lynchburg and carried significant amounts of grain and tobacco every year. But by this time, however, the canal was already a dinosaur, having been eclipsed by the Iron Messiah, the railroad. Infinitely more adaptable to the terrain than canals, railroads quickly came to be the transportation mode of choice. Those dark lines you see are the railroad lines. By 1860, Virginia boasted about 2,000 miles of track, divided up among more than a dozen railroads. But though this mileage was the highest among southern states, it lacked integration. The different lines did not share standard-sized tracks, making it impossible to travel without interruption. More significantly, there was no main or trunk line that fed the majority of traffic into a central location, the way the Pennsylvania Railroad did for Philadelphia. This meant that each line competed with the others for limited state and private funding. As my boss Nelson Langford eloquently demonstrates in his latest book, Virginians in the 1840s and 50s didn't go around saying to each other, gee, isn't it interesting to be living in this antebellum period? No, they didn't know there, was, there would be a bellum that they were then anti of. And to that end, Virginia businessmen, particularly urban ones, engaged in more trade and commercial cooperation in that period with their northern counterparts than ever before. Virginia was truly a border state, and its economy was more truly diversified than its cotton sisters to the south. In light of these factors, it's unsurprising that Virginia agonized over secession for more than just patriotic or political reasons. There was a lot to lose, and many knew it. In the end, it became one of the last states to join the Confederacy, of course, which it did in May 1861. Virginia's economic might and strategic location dictated, it, dictated that it be the site of the Confederate capital. This decision also cast the die to make Virginia the principal battleground on which the nation's most destructive and deadly war would be fought. Virginia Industries made enormous contributions to the war effort. Tredegar Ironworks was, without exaggeration, the most important manufacturing facility in the Confederacy, turning out the lion's share of its artillery, 1,100 pieces, a feat surpassed in the war only by one northern plant. It also provided miles of rail and the iron plates used on the CSS Virginia outfitted at Portsmouth's Gosport Naval Yard. Despite the successes of Tredegar and other industrial facilities, the war brought little but suffering to Virginia. Enormous swaths of the state were laid waste by four years of fighting. Large parts of Fredericksburg, Petersburg, Winchester, and Richmond were utterly destroyed. The state's agricultural production was dealt a crippling blow from which it would not recover for decades. Bridges, roads, and railroads were destroyed, undoing development that had been years in the making. And of course, the cost in Virginian lives was a tragedy for the society and the economy. The one positive outcome, the emancipation of half a million African Americans, would itself, itself wreak havoc on the state's economy, impoverishing many whose investments in slaves were wiped out at a stroke. Estimates varied, but Virginia planters lost at least half of their net worth, perhaps, perhaps more, with the emancipation of the state's half million slaves. Who was going to work the land? 
It was a question not easily answered. Many blacks had fled to cities during or shortly after the war, and they relished the relative freedom and opportunity they found there. So in the plantation counties of Tidewater, Piedmont, and Southside, landowners had to find a new labor system to return their lands to productivity. The result was sharecropping, under whose terms planters divvied up their land to landless blacks and whites to farm. In return for the use of the land, these tenants gave the planter half of the crop they raised. With little incentive to improve their land or invest in new machinery, few planters did so, and Virginia farmland slipped in relative productivity behind other parts of the country for the rest of the 19th century. In areas outside the plantation belt, new kinds of farming became increasingly common, especially that geared toward producing food crops. In the 1870s, fruit orchards started to be a significant presence, especially in the Shenandoah Valley. Vegetable truck farming emerged to feed the growing urban populations of the state as well. And of course, some Virginians just went nuts. Surrey and Isle of Wight counties came to be the leading producers of peanuts in the nation. And Suffolk's Planters Nut Company became the country's largest nut purveyor by marketing a regional delicacy into a national snack food. The leaders of urban Virginia embraced the benefits of industrialization and infrastructure improvement to create what was called, at the time, the New South, which is a problematic and largely unhelpful term in many ways. These urban boosters, as they were called, pushed a pro-business, pro-growth agenda that emphasized attracting industry and creating local governments that catered to commerce. Boosters like Michael Glennon and William Lamb in Norfolk and Joseph Bryan, Lewis Crenshaw, and David Richardson in Richmond became tireless proponents of growth. The first step for these urban boosters was the physical rebuilding of the state's cities and infrastructure. This was no small task. For example, at the end of the war, 20 blocks of downtown Richmond lay in ruins, burnt by retreating Confederate forces. Much of the state's railroad system had also been destroyed. Incredibly, Virginians quickly found the wherewithal to repair the damage. Richmond's downtown was almost completely rebuilt and open for business within two to three years. Railroad recovery was even faster. Most repairs to track and switches were made by the end of 1866. In fact, Virginia saw an expansion of its south leading railroad mileage almost as soon, and largely with local money. Many Virginia railroads, however, fell victim to the panic of 1873 and went into receivership. At that point, several northern financiers, including J.P. Morgan and Collis P. Huntington, swooped in to purchase small railroads and consolidate them into true rail systems. It was at this point that lines like the Norfolk and Western, the Chesapeake and Ohio, and the Southern came to dominate the rails of the state. By 1900, Virginia was crisscrossed by more than 16,000 miles of track, and the state had its first experience with something that would become, and remains, a common theme local companies being subsumed by national ones. Railroads spreading across the state like an iron spider's web did much to promote economic growth in places previously seen as out of the way. Perhaps the best example of this occurred in 1882, when the Norfolk and Western selected the hamlet of Big Lick to be its regional hub in western Virginia. Within 10 years, the rechristened city of Roanoke had grown in population from 1,000 to 25,000 growth spectacular enough to earn it the nickname Magic City. Farther south and west of Roanoke, railroads penetrated the mountains and made the abundant coal that everyone knew to be there accessible. Coal companies, some subsidiaries of the railroads, rushed to set up shop. Both the C&O 
and N&W began carting out endless trains full of coal in the 1880s and 90s. And each railroad's terminus, the CNOs in newly created Newport News, and the N&Ws in Norfolk turned into major coal ports. Norfolk, in fact, became the largest coal port in the world. Collis Huntington looked at the eastern end of his railroad and the coal ships bustling along the CNO's wharves and had a eureka moment. Although, uh, no, I do not know if he was in his bathtub at the time. He saw an opportunity to repair those ships by building a brand new shipyard. In 1886, he established the Newport News Shipbuilding and Dry Dock Company. Eight years later, the yard got its first naval contract, and that began a more than 100-year relationship with the government, a relationship that saw the company become the largest industrial enterprise in Virginia and form a part, along with the Navy Yard across Hampton Roads, of the largest shipbuilding center in the world. While shipbuilding was a relatively new endeavor in Virginia, existing industries continued and grew in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Tobacco manufacturing, always very important, expanded to meet the ever-growing national appetite for cigars and later cigarettes. In Richmond, Petersburg, and Danville, the cityscapes were dominated by giant brick factory buildings staffed by thousands of workers, mostly African Americans, newly arrived from the countryside. The nature of work in these tobacco factories changed dramatically in the early 1880s when Richmond's largest tobacco manufacturer, Allen and Ginter, sponsored a competition for the invention of a machine to automatically roll cigarettes. The winner was James Bonsick of, New of Lynchburg, and the number of cigarettes produced in Richmond grew from 3 million in 1875 to 65 million in 1881 because of his machine. The founder of Allen and Ginter, Louis Ginter, was the most important figure in the Virginia tobacco industry at the time. He was an innovative marketer of his products, including the insertion of baseball cards in his Richmond Gems cigarettes. Ginter's company merged in 1890 with W. Duke and Sons to form the giant American Tobacco Company. He parlayed his fortune into a diverse array of other business ventures, including building the Jefferson Hotel in Richmond and engaging in significant philanthropy. Unlike tobacco, textile manufacturing had a fairly limited track record in Virginia. There were a few scattered small mills, like the one at Matoka in Chesterfield County. But after the war, northern textile manufacturers learned of the surplus rural southern labor and saw an opportunity to reduce their labor costs by relocating their mills from New England. Does that resonate with anyone about current economic conditions? Often opening in small towns in which they were the dominant employers, textile mills proved to be profitable for owners and dangerous for employees, many of whom were women and children. The most significant textile enterprise in Virginia was actually neither located in a small town nor owned by out-of-state interests. In 1882, six Danville men founded Riverside Cotton Mills, which would eventually be renamed Dan River Mills and become, for a time, the largest cotton mill in the world. Mills and other business enterprises benefited from the maturation of Virginia banks in this period. Richmond banks boasted clearings of $83 million in 1890. Twenty years later, that figure had risen almost fivefold. In recognition of its important role as a regional financial center, Richmond was made the headquarters of a Federal Reserve District in 1914. What we have come to call the era of the World Wars occurred just as Virginia was beginning to hit its stride economically. World War I saw European demand spike for Virginia products, textiles, agricultural goods, cigarettes, and especially coal. The U.S. entry into the war in 1917 provided another spur. 
The federal government recognized Virginia's advantages as a training center and established or expanded Camp Lee, Fort Story, Langley Field, and the Marine Base at Quantico, beginning an important military presence in Virginia that continues to this day. War spending also benefited Newport News Shipbuilding, which received contracts for a large number of warships. The flush of wartime prosperity continued after the 1918 armistice. Virginia began to attract significant investment from outside the state. In 1919, British firm Philip Morris incorporated in the U.S. for the first time in Richmond. Long a mainstay, tobacco manufacturing was joined by new industries. The state became the leader in rayon production, for example, in the 1920s, with plants in Richmond, Hopewell, Waynesboro, and Roanoke, which was reportedly the largest in the world at the time. Another new wonder material, aluminum, also became an important part of Virginia's economy. Reynolds Metals was founded by Richard S. Reynolds in 1928 and would go on to employ thousands in the state and eventually introduce the world to aluminum siding, the aluminum beer can, aluminum recycling, and that kitchen stalwart and preferred headgear of conspiracy theorists everywhere, Reynolds Wrap. <laughs> Even as Reynolds and other companies opened up economic opportunities for white Virginians, their African-American counterparts were often left on the outside looking in. The Jim Crow system in Virginia denied basic human freedoms. It limited where blacks could live, work, and shop. Barred from patronizing many white businesses, they created a parallel world of enterprises to serve their own needs. African-American business districts blossomed in towns and cities in the early 20th century. Richmond's Jackson Ward, Charlottesville's Vinegar Hill, Martinsville's Fayette Street. Their offerings ranged from restaurants to barbershops to insurance companies and banks. By the 1920s, black Richmonders were served by no fewer than six banks, including one founded by Magdalena Walker that still exists today. Largely because there were, there were now banks willing to make loans to them, home ownership among Richmond African Americans grew by more than 22% in the 19-teens alone. Virginians, black and white, noticed the stock market crash of October 1929, but its effects were little felt at first. The cities were well balanced between industry and trade, and the countryside was really too poor already to care. In fact, some deemed the state, dangerously, depression-proof. Governor John Pollard, shown here, even tempted fate by arranging a burial at sea for a dummy labeled Old Man Depression. But this hubris was short, proved to be short-lived, and hardship eventually crept in. A drought in the countryside and a slowdown in demand for industrial goods cast almost 150,000 Virginians out of work in 1932. Of course, suffering was most acute among those at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. One Petersburg man spoke to this desperation, quote, when my wife and children get hungry and I have no money, I'm going down on Sycamore Street, break a store window and get them some food. Relief for this suffering was not to come from the state government. The machine of Harry Byrd resisted spending public funds on poor relief, and it was to the New Deal of Franklin Roosevelt that many Virginians had to look for hope. Federal agencies built a range of projects, from schools and hospitals to Alderman Library at UVA and Skyline Drive. This is an important point. These federal funds would set the stage for the government serving as a major employer and stimulator of the state's economy, a condition that continues today. Whatever economic stagnation existed in Virginia was quickly washed away by the massive military buildup that began in 1940. 
as the nation prepared for war with Japan and Germany. In 1941, the Army created two new large military training bases in the state, Forts Pickett and A.P. Hill. These employed large numbers of local residents in support roles. Similarly, the establishment of the Radford and New River Ordnance Works employed up to 20,000 people, turning out shells and bombs for the war effort. Two areas of the state were most affected by the government's defense buildup. Norfolk's massive naval base employed tens of thousands of civilians in ship construction and numerous other jobs, not to mention the thousands of military men who were stationed or embarked there. The other region that benefited most from the war emergency was Northern Virginia. This once sleepy region had begun growing during the New Deal as expanding federal bureaucracies created thousands of jobs in Washington. Soon Fairfax and Arlington resounded to the sounds of hammers and saws as they became important bedroom suburbs of the capital. During the war, federal employees not only lived in Northern Virginia, but with the construction of the Pentagon, the world's largest office building, many of them began to work there too. Growth was spectacular. Arlington's population, for example, swelled by 45% between 1940 and 1942, creating a host of challenges from housing to schooling. Direct work for the government was one way that World War II employed Virginians and stimulated the state's economy. Private companies became defense contractors and supplied invaluable material to the war effort. Foremost among these was Newport News Shipbuilding, which employed 31,000 men and women at its peak and built 47 major naval vessels, including aircraft carriers like the Yorktown and Intrepid. Other Virginia companies that played major roles included Reynolds Metals, who supplied key aluminum components of warplanes and the Martinsville nylon plant of DuPont, whose product wound up in aircraft tires and in parachutes. Virginia had much to celebrate when the war ended in 1945. It emerged from the conflict better off in every measurable way than it had been at the outset. Population had grown, wages were up, women and African Americans had improved job opportunities, and expanding urbanization saw the state continuing to throw off the restraints of a rural economy. As it turned out, this confidence was well-placed. The Cold War meant that government spending continued to be strong. Northern Virginia and Hampton Roads continued to be the prime beneficiaries, and they became the engines driving the state's economy. In Hampton Roads, shipbuilding and the military maintained their roles as key economic forces. And in Northern Virginia, the federal government remained of primary importance, and especially as government agencies increasingly moved across the Potomac in search of room to build new facilities. Fairfax County became the very exemplar of a post-war booming suburb. Its population grew from 41,000 in 1940 to 454,000 30 years later. These new residents were not all government employees. Increasingly, national corporations found it was a good idea to open offices in Northern Virginia to be near the federal agencies from which contracts flowed. Beginning in the 1980s, Northern Virginia's location near the levers of the federal government helped lead it to become a hub of the emerging high-tech industry. Computers and telecommunications, prompted in large part by President Reagan's call for the development of the Star Wars missile defense system, made Northern Virginia one of the fastest growing regions in the country. MCI, Nextel, America Online, and dozens of companies, big and small, have emerged as major players in Virginia's economy and are a major reason that it attracts enormous numbers of residents from outside of the state and abroad. Interestingly, the dependence on federal and private defense contracts meant that the Northern Virginia high-tech sector was significantly less affected by the dot-bomb phenomenon 
that plagued Silicon Valley beginning about the year 2000. Richmond's post-war path to success was less clear-cut. Its traditional strengths in tobacco manufacturing and other labor-intensive industries continued, but increasingly, a new group of entrepreneurs drove the city in different directions. These included Floyd Gottwald, whose takeover of the much larger chemical producer, Ethel Corporation, was described in a newspaper headline as Jonah Swallows the Whale. Joining Gottwald in prominence was E. Claiborne Robbins Sr., who grew his family pharmaceutical business to become the producer of such household names as Robitussin and Chapstick. Richmond retailers proved similarly successful. Sidney and Francis Lewis pioneered catalog showroom sales in their best product stores, eventually expanding the chain to 200 outlets nationwide. Sam Wurzel founded Ward's Electronics in 1949, and that business eventually became big box retail innovator Circuit City. Now, other parts of Virginia and its economy found the going tougher in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. The textile and furniture factories of Southside largely succumbed to the pressures of international competition. Ironically, of course, some of those same reasons that they had come to Virginia to begin with, lower costs, cheaper labor. Similarly, tobacco production and manufacturing has dropped sharply in an era of public health and product liability concerns. The South Side and Southwest Virginia have not shared equally in the state's post-war prosperity. Allowing them to do so is a vexing problem that is still a long way from solved. So, as Virginia entered the 21st century, having finally broken out of the long-time dependence on agriculture and extractive industries, where do we stand? Virginia boasts a truly diversified economy for the first time really in its history. As a result, Virginians are more prosperous, better educated, more ethnically diverse, and live in a far more just society than ever before. However, all is not rosy. Globalization and consolidation has brought job loss and insecurity to many. Just ask anyone who works for Wacomia Securities. But overall, this long, the long story that began 400 years earlier at Jamestown as a daring business gamble has paid off. Virginia continues to be a catalyst of commerce, and the adventurous spirit of the founders helps our history inform our present. Thank you very much.